following audio is from Covenant Life Fellowship. For more information about our church and to stay up to date on all sermons, events, and news, please visit our website at www.clfroseburg.com. We have spent the last four weeks kind of covering Genesis 1 and 2 and the story of creation. And we saw that... You know, God made everything in six days. On the seventh day, he rested. And on the sixth day, he declared that creation was very good. You know, humans representing God, made in the image of God, working the garden as the ground worked with them, not against them. They serving one another and God in harmony and unity and the earth, just providing everything humans needed, you know, from water to precious metals to all the stuff that they needed. Everything was kind of humming along quite nicely. And as we talked about last week, that joyful unity and peaceful design is nothing like what we currently experience in our world. Right? I mean, instead, it feels like just the opposite. There's chaos, conflicts, trouble. Um, I mean, doesn't it feel like right now that there's like a mass shooting every week? Um, I mean, just something tragic happening you know, all the time, you know, I mean, I, you know, I, I have some European friends and they, you know, say, man, what's going on in America? You guys have mass shootings. I say, what's going on in America and Europe? You guys have these like soccer fights that like kill 30,000 people. I mean, come on, just let's kind of equal this thing out a little bit. But there's massacres and pre- bad things happening every time you open the newspaper. We were, we referred to Genesis three last week, but this week we're going to dive into that dark chapter of the Bible and we're just going to spend our time looking that over. And here's what I hope we'll see. This is our big idea. And again, big ideas aren't profound, but it's given just to give you an idea of what the text seems to be saying. And here's what we're going to see. Satan lies. Humans disobey God. Sin hurts, but God saves. Okay. So we're going to see Satan lies. Humans disobey God. Sin hurts. God saves. Now, what you're going to see in Genesis chapter 3 is what's called the fall, not not the season of the year, right? So make sure we got that right. This is not looking at all the beautiful colors and how they all change and the glistening of the rivers and, you know, all that. That's not what's happening here. Rather, what you're going to see is every hardship that you experience in this world is found that it begins in Genesis chapter 3. We live in a Genesis 3 world. That's what you're living in. All you know for the last 70, 80, 20, 15 years of your life is living in a Genesis 3 world. Every one of us feel the weight of this chapter every second of every day. There's not a moment that you do not feel the weight of living in a Genesis 3 world. When you see evil in this world, Genesis 3 is when it came to earth. When you see sickness and disease, Genesis 3. When you experience heartache, heart-wrenching conflict, and you see rivalries among nations and individuals, Genesis chapter 3. It simply cannot be understated how impactful Genesis 3 is to the world that you live in. And if you live without reference to Genesis chapter 3, you're going to be massively confused in this world because you're not going to understand why all of this stuff is going on around you. But there's another issue in Genesis chapter 3 that I don't want us to miss. We had better not miss it because it's in the text. And it's this. God had a plan and a solution for our trouble. You simply cannot miss this. God was not taken by surprise when Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden. I don't know how you operate with your view of God, but there's some that would say God does not know what humans are going to do. And what God does is he then makes a design after humans make choices and have effects. That is not what you see of the God of the Bible. Matter of fact, Genesis chapter three did not take God off of his restful throne and suddenly get shocked. And now he's filled with anxiety and stress over what he's going to do with these wicked people when they finally blew it. That's not what we see here. What we're going to see 
this morning is this. God. Now just for a moment, just, just let this settle in your soul for a moment. The God who spoke all the worlds into existence. The God who made man out of dust and breathed air into his nostrils. The God, the God who took the rib of the man and made a woman and put them in a garden and gave them life. That God, the God who saw you before time began and sent his son to come save you from your sin, that God already had a plan for what happened in Genesis chapter 3. That's how awesome and authoritative and powerful and all-knowing and sovereign your God is. I, I don't, we cannot miss that. Um, using a Jerry Bridges quote, the idea you're going to get today is, for every one look at our sin, we're going to take ten looks at Jesus. That's the goal this morning, because it's a dark chapter. So stand with me, let's read Genesis 3, 1 through 13, <clears throat> and then we're going to pray. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the tree in the, the of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes and that it was desired to make one wise, she took its fruit and ate and she also gave to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden of the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of God among the trees in the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you're naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave me, who gave to be with me, she gave me of the fruit, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you've done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. Let's pray. Fathers, we open your word this morning to potentially the darkest chapter in the Bible. I pray that you would reveal to us the light of Christ. Because you are such a good and glorious and gracious God that you never intended for us to stay in our sinful state. You have a plan to return us to Eden and one day eat of the tree of life and live forever in that glorious state. Open our eyes to these truths today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you. Maybe now let's start by looking at Satan's lies and humanity's sin. You're going to see this in verses one through six. <clears throat> We're introduced to the serpent in verse one. You can see that pretty clearly. Uh, notice a few things about him. Notice that he was created by God, and also notice that we have a name for him. It's serpent. Now that's important because if you remember back in Genesis chapter two. God gave Adam the authority to name all of the animals, which means this animal, the serpent, was named by Adam and was subservient to Adam. Meaning he was created by God, he's an animal, he's on the earth, and at the same time, he has been one that Adam has already named, given him a name. But notice this naming, this, this animal was more crafty than all the other animals. Now, when you and I read about the serpent, it kind of jumps up on the page because we haven't seen anything about a serpent in the rest of the Bible. But when Moses' people would have read about the serpent, they immediately would have assumed a few things. First, in the ancient myths of the, the false gods of their time, serpents and reptiles were rebel counselors in the heavenly realms. So the moment they would read serpent, the first thing that would pop into their mind is 
something bad is about to happen. Matter of fact, if you have ever read or you know about the Epic of Gilgamesh from the old Babylonian mythology series, basically what you find is the serpent was the antagonist to man or humans. That's what you're reading in Genesis chapter 3. They would, they would, this would have been language they would have been very, very familiar with. Something bad is about to take place. Now you'll notice that the crafty antagonist approached Eve with a question. Did God actually say that you should not eat of any tree of the garden? Now Eve's reply is telling. She says, well, we may eat of the tree, of the trees of the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the tree in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. Serpent then just simply replies with a very emphatic statement. You will not surely die because God knows in that day when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So let's just unpack this moment and just see what what's happening here. First notice with me that the serpent very craftily and very uh, kind of sneakily approached Eve. Now, this may not seem like a big deal, and you'd go, why, why would that be a big deal? It's be like tro- approaching mom, and it's like, you know, if you've spoken to mom, you've spoken to dad. That's not what's happening here. Eve was not the first recipient of the command that God had given. She was a recipient of the command through Adam. Adam had first-hand knowledge of God's command, but Eve did not. It's a crafty idea from the serpent to just simply go to the one who may not know the command as explicitly well as Adam. You're going to know something. notice something in the text. Nowhere does a serpent ever talk to Adam. He only speaks to Eve. Going to the one he knew, maybe not did have the command, had the command very clearly, and just enticing her to begin to communicate with him. Now, women who generally have more words than men was glad to talk, right? Notice then that the serpent engaged Eve by questioning first God's authority. Did God actually say... Now that phrase seems like the serpent is just saying, hey, did God really say this? But in the language, what he's actually saying is, does it seem right to you, Eve, that God said you should not eat of the tree, of any tree in the, you should eat only of the tree, you should not eat of the tree in the midst of the garden. Does that seem right to you? It's not a question as much as it is an accusation about God's authority. The serpent asked Eve, interestingly enough, her interpretation of God's command. Hey Eve, give me what you feel about this. Does that sound like something you hear in our world today? There are many interpretations of God's law. It's a, whatever you think it is really matters to you. What's your thoughts on this, Eve? And notice Eve's response. Her, her response is really interesting. It's she actually changes God's command. And she does it subtly. Notice what she says. I put them on the screen side by side so you can see God's command to Adam and what Eve actually states. God said to Adam, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, meaning you have liberty. It's fully to your capacity. Take every one of the trees and eat of it. But notice what Eve says. We may eat, might be able to eat. It might be okay for us to eat of some of the trees of the garden. What Eve does here is just simply limits the freedom that God gave them. Just something interesting, isn't it? Doesn't most of God's commands come to us with the thought, what is God keeping me from? There's a limit to God's freedom, but Eve just simply twisted and changes it just a little bit. Also notice that she says something else. She added to God's command. She said, neither shall you touch it. Nowhere in God's command to Adam do you see neither shall you touch it. Meaning it is something innate in all of us, especially those who want to be right with God, to add to God's commands. The Jewish people took God's command and just simply made a guardrail around it. Here, thou shalt keep the Sabbath. And they said, hey, you can't walk more than these steps on the Sabbath. What is Eve doing here? Like a good little girl, she's just simply making sure she's not going to violate the rule. Don't even touch it. But that's not what God said. But then she weakens the penalty. God said, you will surely die. She says, lest you die. 
in the language, it is more of a warning, like this might be something that could happen. Be careful that might take place. But in God's language is, no, if you eat of it, you will surely die. Now, in Eve's response, she just changes the command God gave to Adam three different times. And what that does is just simply give the serpent all the ammunition he needs. After Eve answered, notice what the serpent does. He suddenly now becomes the judge. He once again impugns God's character and impugns God's authority when he says, you will not surely die. And then he questions God's character when he says, listen, God knows that the moment you eat of this fruit, Eve, you're going to be like God, knowing good and evil. And God does not want anybody like that. That's not what he wants for you. Eve, do you see it? God is keeping something from you. He's keeping you from being like God. The serpent not only questioned God's authority, but he also questions God's integrity and God's goodness. He is accused, he's accusing God of being sinister and evil. In a sense, what he's doing is making something evil look good and something good look evil. See that going on in your world ever? Now at that moment in the dialogue, you're going to notice something. The dialogue's over. There's no more talk between Eve and the serpent. It's finished. You know why? Eve is deceived. And then we read verse 6, which is the most tragic verse in the Bible about our sin and our rebellion against God. Eve, and notice all the self-language in the verse, saw that it was good for food, saw it was desirous to make her wise. It looked good to the eyes She took the fruit and she ate it. And then she gave to Adam, who was with her, and he ate it. In other words, Adam seemed to, the originator, the guy who originally got the command, the one who's the authority and leader in his home, watches his wife get deceived, doesn't say a word, and like most husbands, his wife bats her eyes and he says, yes, ma'am, and takes the fruit and eats with her. Adam, from all indication of Scripture, was not deceived, but Eve was. Adam knew exactly what he was doing. He took the fruit, and he ate. What was once forbidden now looks good after the serpent's lies. Now, from this tragic moment, let's just draw a couple things out of it that I think we can we can really apply and see. I think you're going to see these clearly. The serpent, who we know of in the Bible, is Satan himself, has attacked God's authority from the beginning of time. Friends, don't you need to understand this as you're dialoguing with your world and as you're listening to the lies of the world, which are constantly telling you and questioning the authority of God. His lies are the same today from the same angle. Did God actually say that each gender was made in his image and God gave you that gender for a reason? Did God actually say that humans are to take dominion of the earth and they are the crown jewel of God's creation? Did God actually say that marriage should be between one man and one woman for one lifetime in monogamous faithfulness? Did God actually say that humans find ultimate fulfillment by living for the glory of God and serving others? Did God really create the universe by the word of his power? Satan has always attacked the authority of God, but he's also always attacked the character of God. He's also attacked, in particular, the goodness of God to make us question whether or not God is keeping something back from us. Satan's lies would be something like this. The reason God said sex outside of marriage is wrong is because God is keeping you from really finding fulfillment. The reason God said to worship Him alone is because He's power hungry and He's a glory hog. Since time began, Satan's lies have always been about God's authority and God's goodness. That's why, friends, simple catechisms with your children, will you remind them, honey, what, what, is, what is truth? Well, truth is what God said. What is, char- what is God's character? Oh, God is eternally good to his people. Reminding them of these truths, beginning to, if you will, inoculate their hearts with the wonder of the gospel, 
Because you're going to see, even in Genesis 3, in a moment when God could judge us for our sins, God reveals to us His goodness. Satan has always attacked the character of God. He's always questioned God's authority. But listen, the other reason, the the reason why we choose disobedience to God is because of how self-pleasing sin looks to us and how self-satisfying it looks. I mean, think about the comments you have that you think of yourself. You ask your kids, why did you do what you did? And they'll go, I don't know. It seemed fun. Well, son, throwing a rock at your sister is not fun. It's dangerous. Why did you do this? It just seemed right to me. How many verses in the Bible can you recognize that would say everybody did what was right in their own eyes? Sin always makes things look self-satisfying for a season. Sin is filled with selfish desires, controlled by selfish authority. The moment Adam and Eve took the fruit was when the kingdom of self and the kingdom of sin begin controlling our hearts as human. So everything about us begin to be about me, myself, and I. And you can't get on social media for very long without recognizing that. I mean, it's called the selfie culture for a reason. The kingdom of self calls for allegiance and believes that rebellion against the kingdom of God and His commands and His authority is where true life is ultimately found. Satan lies, humanity sins. Now let's look at the consequence of these sins. That's the second point you're going to notice in verses 7 through 19. Rather than the joy in life that Satan promised, Adam and Eve's disobedience caused them to feel something they've never felt before. Shame and fear. Now for a moment here, I know this, you can't even, we can't even breathe this air. The moment you came out of the womb crying, and the moment you came out of the womb screaming mine, and the moment you came out of the room lying according to what the Bible says, and from the moment you've breathed, all you've ever experienced is shame and fear. We don't have a cat, we don't even have a category for what Adam and Eve were going. This is the first moment in human history when humans felt shame and fear. And they knew they had blown it. Just like us. We know we've blown it. And they tried to fix it by covering themselves with these little fig leaves. Taking some branches, some leaves, covering themselves up because they were naked, they were afraid. And when God came looking for them, they were hiding in fear. Again, a moment they'd never experienced before. They're used to a close walking relationship with God where anytime God didn't have to say, Adam, where are you? They were always right there together. But now they're running in fear of God, hiding themselves. It's almost like you can see the moment in a parent you've had this where your kid is like standing up next to the wall. They got their hands over their eyes and you say, Johnny, where are you? And you're staring right at them. And because they can't see you, they think you can't see them. Adam's like got his eyes closed, covered in his little fig leaves. Adam, where are you? And God can see them. They've never had this moment. And, the, and when God called out to Adam, and you'll notice in the text, he goes to Adam first. Why? Because he's the authority, the leader who's responsible. He goes to Eve second. Then he goes to the serpent, but gives him a curse. Doesn't even ask him a question. And when he asks Adam a question, what does Adam do? The woman you gave me. What's funny is we think that Adam's actually blaming the woman. No, he's not. He's actually blaming God. The woman you gave me. God, if you had not have given me this woman, we'd never be in this situation. But then Eve, what does she do? The serpent made me do it. And you can feel the shame and the guilt dripping off the page. Even though they, they admit, and I ate, it's after blame shifting, hiding, covering up, doing everything they could to deal with their sin. Now you're going to notice something in the text. In verse 14, the genre changes, meaning the way the writer writes about what happens changes. You know, most biblical narratives, you're going to find them written, historical narrative kind of written like, here's a story. Here's some poetry where you see poetry, you see some prophecy. Genesis chapter 3 has all of them. The writer is 
using all sorts of genres to get the point across. And he changes the genre to God, speaking directly to each creature involved, and he uses poetry to do it. He cursed the serpent to slither on the ground and eat dust. And notice, he promised in Genesis 3.15 that an offspring of the woman, now just process this, the very person he deceived from her would come one who would have the final say and would conquer the serpent. In other words, that offspring of the woman would have the final say of all things. Serpent, you, you won't have that. But then he told the woman, as we talked about this last week, that she would have pain and childbearing. And there would be ongoing conflict with her man. They had never experienced this kind of conflict, never had the battle of the sexes in their home. There was working unity with their harmony and their relationship and the roles, and they did it joyfully. But now after sin comes, they're fighting for supremacy all the time. And then he told the man that the ground he was to cultivate would now work against him. Thorns and thistles would come up, and his work would become painful and hard. And then he says, and man, Adam, from the dust you came, and from the dust you'll return. It's the first moment when God spoke to Adam, you're going to die. Now, while each of these, these consequences and curses have their own issues and own things with them, I want you to notice the irony of all of them. Listen to these two quotes. AP like this. These are not commandments to be obeyed, but declarations of how life now must be. The oracles thus all reflect lawful justice. They sinned by eating and so would suffer to eat. She led her husband to sin and so now she would be mastered by him. They brought pain into their, into the world by their disobedience and so would have painful toil in their respective lives. And the serpent ruined the human race and so he would be destroyed. Kenneth Matthews put it like this, in each instant the punishment will also correspond to the nature of the crime. Each oracle consists of a divine penalty followed by a description of the consequences. Defeat. For the serpent, the penalty is humiliation. And the consequences of his defeat by the offspring, the woman's offspring. For the woman, the penalty is painful labor and childbirth. And the consequence of her sin is defeat in her conflict with her husband. And for the man, the penalty is painful labor and agriculture. And the consequence is his defeat in his conflict with the ground. It is evident from Genesis chapter 3 that sin has consequences. Unlike what the lying serpent told Eve, they would indeed die. He said to them, you will not die. Sin robbed humanity of the dominion that God created us for and brought defeat and death instead. Rather than being at peace with God and with one another, there is now global conflict There's heavenly conflict, there's interpersonal conflict, and there's conflict everywhere. Rather than a future of life and joy, sin brought death and misery. Sin always has consequences. Now what we have a tendency to do is we read this story of of Adam and Eve and we put ourselves off the hook. Many religions in the world would say, that was that Adam and Eve's deal. Yeah, we experience a few things from them, but this isn't us. But the Bible would beg to differ. We're told in Romans chapter 5 that Adam represents all of us. That sin came into the world by one man, which is Adam, and death through his sin because all sinned. And we're told that one man's sin made the many, all of us, sinners as well. Adam's sin is our own. You know how you know that? You know that by your own battle with sin. Right? There's some religions in the world that say sin is only what we do with our physical bodies. Some would say, I could watch all the porn I want, but never engage in sexual immorality, therefore I'm not sinful. But Jesus said something different, didn't he? He said, you've heard it said, do not commit adultery. Jesus said, but I say to you, if you've lusted in your heart, you've committed adultery. See, Jesus takes it way deeper into the souls of us. We all know this is what we battle with. We battle with the the sins of anger and pride and lust and greed and coveting and discontentment and jealousy. 
We battled all these things internally. We know that Adam's sin is our sin by the struggle that we have every day of our lives. And we also know Adam's sin is our sin because of the consequences that you see. Friends, if you're going to do any gardening this spring, you're going to face Adam's consequences. The thorns and thistles and things that go on. Every one of you going to work hard to put food on the table. What does that feel like? It feels like Adam's consequences. We have it every day. The guilt, the terror of God, and eventual death where we see death every moment. And we're in that time of the world where we say, time of the, time of the calendar where, listen, it is true. We all are going to face death and taxes. Every one of us face death. Ladies, there's pain in childbirth, is there not? Grateful God made you ladies and made me a dude. I'm glad for that. Right? All are evidence that Adam's sin is our sin. But also don't miss in the text how humanity deals with our sin. You notice what Adam and Eve do, right? They take fig leaves and they sew them together to try to cover it up. They blame somebody else. They run from God. Friends, humanity has vainly tried to deal with our shame and fear from the beginning of time. The the very poor theologian George Carlin said at one time that guilt is a product of religion. Therefore, if we get rid of religion, we will have no guilt. And Carlin misunderstood the fact that the reason we have guilt is not religion. It's because we have sinned against Almighty God and we all know it. Every last one of us. And humans have done everything they could. For George Carlin, get rid of religion. Every other major religion in the world has a works system. Muslims have a ranking system. They can go a certain amount of good works that maybe those might be good. If you go to a, a mosque and you pray, it's more ranking points than it is if you pray at home when you pray. And all those good points, hopefully at the end of the day, will line up and you will be more good than you were bad. Judaism's attempt was something different. They just took the law of God and they added to it, hoping that would help them be right with God. You see it in your world with the idea of karma. Karma just simply states, do enough good deeds that will one day bring all the good things back to you. What goes around comes around. Humanity's natural instinct to deal with our shame and guilt is to sew fig leaves together, hoping to save ourselves from the consequences of sin. We've always done this. You do it right now. The moment that you sin against God, the first thought in your mind is, how do I make this up? But our weak solutions pale in comparison to God's. And that's our last point. God's answer and solution. We're going to see this in verses 21 to 24. Instead of leaving Adam and Eve in their sorry state, God covered, and they covered in their puny little fig leaves, God clothed them in animal skin. You see this in verse 21. Now we, we simply cannot cover our sin because our problem is with God. I mean, again, going back to the example of a little child hiding in the corner with their eyes closed, thinking you can't see them. That's what Adam and Eve did. They sewed fig leaves together. God called them out. Where are you? We're hiding because we, we, we were naked and we were afraid. Who told you this? And they kind of come out almost like hoping God doesn't see the fig leaf. And God is not happy with that. Because we cannot cover our sin. And better yet, let me give you another thought. You cannot forgive your sin, nor can you forgive yourself of your sin. Only God can forgive you of your sin because your sin is against God. Only God can deal with our sin. So God clothes Adam and Eve with this animal skin. Now, this animal skin is is incredibly significant in the Bible story. First, you're going to notice this means our sin required death. Imagine for a moment, when you're going back to Genesis 3, just for a moment, Adam had never experienced death. Now, think how weird that is. Some of you went to a funeral last week. 
Some of you got an email from a friend that they, that, that another friend had passed away. Some of you got a phone call this week of a bad health diagnosis that says, um, hey, by the way, you have four months to live. Adam had never experienced a death, not one death, not one death. Yet, listen to this, God took an animal that Adam named, and then God sacrificed that animal to clothe Adam and Eve. Imagine the shock this would have been for Adam. Marcus Dodds, quoted by A.P. Ross, wrote this, To us, life is cheap and death is familiar. But Adam recognized death as the punishment of sin. Death was to early man a sign of God's anger. And he had to learn that sin could be covered not by a bunch of leaves snatched from a bush as he passed by that would grow again next year, but only by pain and blood. Friends, this is the first moment in the Bible when you see, an, you see a blood sacrifice to deal with our sin that would please and satisfy God. It's why the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 9 said, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. It's why Jesus on the cross said, it is finished. Because when he finished his death on the cross, that payment was completely done. Meaning, forgiveness is now available to all who would receive that forgiveness. And you don't need to add to that forgiveness by saying, I need to have others to forgive me before I'm truly forgiven, or I need to forgive myself before I'm truly forgiven. No, that happened the moment Jesus said, it is finished. But this animal skin is also significant because it reveals something to you. He reveals that you can't save yourself from your sin and misery. So I hope you understand this. Salvation will not come by us doing good works. Matter of fact, our good works, the Bible says, is like filthy rags in the eyes of God. It, compared to the righteousness of God, they are dirty, they're filthy. Our salvation, being saved from our sin and misery, will come from God covering us with His work and His righteousness. As we talked about earlier, Genesis 3.15 and the curse of the, the serpent, God promised this champion to come. You have a promise in Genesis 3.15 of the offspring of the woman coming and crushing the serpent's head. But in Genesis 3.21, you have the picture of this champion who would come in this animal being sacrificed, meaning that this champion who would come, the offspring of the woman, would be one who would get, be a man, who would be made in the image of man, but would be from God, and who would come and die like that animal did in Genesis chapter 3, who would cover us. Now we know from the Bible that this Genesis 3 champion is... Jesus. A.P. Ross put it like this, the motifs in this chapter, toil, sweat, thorns, the conflict, the tree, death, dust, and the seed, all will be reflected in the experience of Christ, who became the curse. Sweat great drops of blood in bitter agony. Wore a crown of thorns that was produced by the curse, by the way. Hung on a tree until he was dead and was placed in the dust of death. Jesus took it all. It is God's work and God's work alone to relieve us of our shame and our fear by God's grace and His kindness. See, just for a moment, God could have left us there. But He didn't. He had a plan, and He provided the champion for us. And God is the only one who can save us from our sin and our misery. See, so just for a moment, as you wrestle through theologies or religions or whatever it may be, you need to be looking at this idea. What can set me free from my sin? What can set me free from the guilt I feel every day of my life? And listen, friends, it will not come by doing more good works. It will come by trusting in the good work that Christ has already done for you. But well, we see something in the text that's startling is that we're not just saved from our sin and misery. We're actually saved from ourselves. Notice when there's something that happens in verses 22 through 24, 
when God said that he removed humanity from the Garden of Eden so they would not eat of the tree of life and live forever. Now, you might you might read this and go, well, that seems kind of tricky. I mean, I mean, don't we want to live forever? Isn't that what we're after, is eternal life? Why, why would God keep Adam and Eve from going back into the garden, eating the tree of life, and then living forever? Why would that be a problem? Friends, when Adam and Eve ate the fruit, they attempted to be equal with God. They attempted to rival God. Now you go, what's the big deal with that? Because man was not made to rival God. Man was made to represent God. And man's problem for all of man's life has been that man has tried to rival God. We've always done this. We did it because that's exactly what the serpent did before us. He tried to rival God and God said not so much. And if Adam and Eve had eaten of the tree of life in the Garden of Eden, in the sinful state they were in, listen clearly, they would have lived forever in that sinful state. They would have lived forever like that. And if they had gone back into the Garden of Eden, they would have turned the Garden of Eden into a living hell because of their sin. If you for one moment take the grace of God away from this world, we will destroy ourselves in that moment. But God had a completely different plan. He had a better plan. His plan was to, to restore humans to such a degree that we could once again live in the Garden of Eden and we would have the right to eat of the tree of life. You'll find that in Revelation chapter 22. To do that, what does God have to do? He's got to remove Adam and Eve from the garden. Again, if they would have stayed there, they'd have turned that place into a living hell. For some of you, the reference might be, they'd have turned that place into the Lord of the Flies. Or for others of you in another generation, like Thanos' universe. Where tyranny and horror and misery are everywhere. They would have made, they would have lived in that place forever in that particular state. So God had to remove them. John MacArthur, preaching on this text, said this, they would have, they would have, they would live forever as wicked, depraved, fallen sinners. That's not good. I think that's an understatement. It's tough enough to get through your forties and fifties and into your sixties and you get pretty sick of it. But living as a fallen, wretched, wicked sinner forever is not a blessing. God has something much better. Friends, God planned to save humans by His grace and power to such a degree that our salvation would mean that when we die, we would be raised and transformed with brand new bodies so we can experience the Garden of Eden once again in a place called heaven and we could partake of the tree of life. How much better could God be to people? When God kicked Adam and Eve out of the Garden of Eden, though it was painful and challenging, it was an act of God's kindness and His mercy because He had a much better plan. Now you go, now how? What, what is Adam doing in the middle of all this? Right? We don't, we don't get a whole lot of responses out of Adam except in one verse. And it's right in the middle of all this stuff. Adam responds in remarkable faith. Look with me at verse 20, where it seems like a very odd verse. Right after God, in verse 19, or verses uh, 14 through 19, had announced the curse on the serpent and the penalties that were given to Adam and Eve, it's a, it's a verse about naming Eve. Someone say, what's that about? Well, someone would say, well, it's mainly about the fact that this still shows that Adam is still the authority and leader in his home, even after the fall. That's true. But that's not the point. It's a partial part of the point. Notice that he called Eve the mother of the what? The living. If you just look in your Bible and you go back up to verse 19, what did God just pronounce to Adam? Adam, you're all going to die. You're going back to the dust. But rather than looking at death, 
Adam responds by calling Eve the mother of all the living. He's looking ahead. A.P. Ross put it like this. Adam's faith to name Eve means he looked ahead from their plight and saw hope. The whole incident shows that they accepted their lot in a fallen world, but held on to the positive side of it. Life would continue. If anybody had reason to be depressed, it'd be Adam. Their look is uplifted in faith. The name Eve, interpreted by the narrator as the mother of all living, signifies that the woman became a pledge in the continuation of the race in spite of the curse. The name celebrates the survival of the race and the victory over death. By anticipating life, it also commemorates the establishment of a new order. See, Adam's faith is significant to us. Because all of us face the same plight as Adam and Eve. We're all facing death. Every one of you in the room right now are facing death. We're all facing death. We're all under the consequences of sin. We all need the forgiveness of our sin. We need to be saved from ourselves. And and the Bible would tell us this faith that we see in Adam is something also we need to do. We need to believe. According to Paul in Ephesians chapter 2, he says, by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of work so that no one may boast. And when we put our faith in Jesus, we are saved from the penalty of our sins, eternal death, and we are saved from the power of our sins, meaning sin no longer has domination over us. So when you're reading Genesis 3, you're really reading the story of God saving humans through faith. Now let's just step back from Genesis 3, and I just want you to ask some questions about this. Do you see that God already knew Genesis 3 was coming. (laughs) I mean, and God made the perfect plan to save you. He made the perfect plan to save us from our sins and from ourselves. He made the perfect plan to get us back to the Garden of Eden and one day eat of the Tree of Life. And I want you to notice it's from His kindness, mercy, and grace. If you think and if you've heard, there's no grace in the Old Testament. Friends, how much more grace could I preach this morning? It's the perfect plan to satisfy the justice and holiness of God so that God could give us forgiveness without violating His holy character. God could have left us in the garden, left us in our miserable state, given us a tree of life in our sinful state, and let us stay there forever. But He didn't. He sent a champion. He sent Jesus to restore us to God and one day give us the hope of being in Eden once again. That's an amazing God that you serve. It's an amazing God. So when you look around the world and you see all the chaos and the confusion and the weirdness, you need to take one glimpse at that and take ten looks at your Savior. When you see your sin, take one glimpse at your sin and look to your Savior. As Graham Goldsworthy put it to end our time, he said this, His, Jesus' saving work in the world was not an afterthought because of sin, but was the eternal purpose of God. It was the plan of God before creation and from all eternity. Upon this plan, God created all things. If we can imagine God drawing up the plans of the universe before He created it, and if we could imagine these plans, could examine these plans, we would not see Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, but Jesus Christ in the Gospel. Amen. Let's pray. Now, as we're praying this morning, just take a moment before the Lord. Let, just do business with God. You know, you're maybe you're a believer. You said, man, I trusted Jesus. But you find yourself sowing up those fig leaves again. And this morning, you need to burn those things. You need to believe with all your heart that when Jesus said, it is finished, it is finished. And this morning, bring your sin to Christ. If you're a child of God, here's the promise to you. If you confess your sin, He is faithful and just to forgive you of your sin 
and cleanse you of all unrighteousness. And this morning, you need to just get some things on the table with God. Your pride, anger, lust, bitterness, jealousy, selfish ambition, you name the issue. This morning, you need to do some business with God and you need to take off your fig leaves. Stop hiding. Stop blaming others and own it before your God and He is faithful to forgive you. And maybe you're here, you're not a Christian and you've come face to face with the living God who's revealed to you that a champion has come for you and you will never achieve salvation in your own. It must come from Christ. And this morning you want to put your trust in Jesus and I would just tell you to do that. Tell God that you believe in Him, that you believe in Christ, that Christ came for you, that you confess Jesus as your King and you want to Live your life for Jesus. And so, Father, we come to you this morning thanking you that you've revealed to us once again the Christ. Thanking you that in our sin and misery you had a plan. Thanking you that when we look at the chaos in this world, we can say, wait, our God, our God is dealing with all this. Our God has a plan. Our God is great and merciful and good and has sent us a Savior. And I pray, Lord, as well, when we sin against you, that we would say the same. You have a plan. You have not left us. You have come for us. You have rescued us from our sin and misery. And you are our God and our King. And we thank you. Thank you that you will one day get us to the Garden of Eden. And we will one day have the right to the tree of life and live forever in that place, in that, in that state, made right with you, restored to the original image that you made of us, in us, to represent you and love you and glorify you and serve one another with joy and bliss and unity forevermore. That is your work. Thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This sermon has been proudly given in response to cherishing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Be sure to check out our YouTube channel and subscribe to watch all our sermons online. For more information about Covenant Life Fellowship, visit us on the web at www.clfroseburg.com.